This is the first episode of the Breathing Problem Productions podcast. Uh, I'm Rusty Kelly. And I'm Amelia McKay. And uh, this has been a long time in the making. Uh, we're dealing with the first, you know, we got microphones and we set everything up, so there might be technical stuff, but I think I think we're okay. Yeah. It sounds, if anything, it's making both of us smile because <laughs> we have these, like, nice microphones for vocals and it's like almost ridiculous you know it's like i feel like we're on a radio channel or something yeah um so it's almost like kind of gets takes a little getting used to in terms of um hearing your voice in this other way yeah definitely um but i know everyone's listening to this and they're groaning maybe a little going oh another podcast yeah do we need another podcast in the world? Probably not. Um, but God knows uh, uh, we've helped release or record a million uh, harsh noise tapes and PE tapes that probably don't need to exist. But hey, we want them to. So for the few people listening, thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, there is no Patreon or anything. It's all free. We're going to be putting out on like... We're going to, guess, make like a website with a feed and then going to try to put everything on Spotify, on YouTube, whatever, whatever we can. So it'll just be easy and free to listen to. There's no, you know, paywalls or anything, um, which not that there's anything wrong with paywalls. Um, I can I support plenty of Patreons. I know you do, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but for us, this thing is just easier done, I think, that in the in the sense i don't i just don't want to set up a patreon right now or deal with that um but so one thing i wanted to say is we're gonna do what i what we're calling breathing problem productions like normal episodes or regular episodes where we talk to each other or a friend about either the history of bbp or noise or films whatever we like and then also there's going to be like comedy sub episodes that i might be doing so you know expect that uh, we're going to try to do this once a week. Who knows if we'll stick with it, but that's the plan. Um, and I guess for the first episode, the plan is to talk about how Amelia and I met and um, our history together and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Amelia, uh, when did we meet? We met... At the beginning of 2012, at some kind of party, I think you have a better memory of the very first time we met more than I do. Yeah. Uh, but we mostly started hanging out all the time in the late summer of 2012. Yes. So it had been a while since like we had first met each other, mm-hmm. like in passing. Yeah, we. Uh, I remember meeting you in february 2012 um with i met you through our friend gilbert who's not with us but he's i'm sure we'll be talking about him a good amount gilbert cruz rest in peace uh he was our roommate and friend and amelia i went to high school with gilbert at uh garza in austin texas which is an alternative school and um it's just one of those schools that have like just dropouts or like whatever i went there too yeah i mean that was how people viewed it it was the austin texas school for you know they called it for pregnant kids or right. for 
but it, it really it was just the Austin Alternative School near mm-hmm. the end, or it still it still exists, right? Yeah, it does. And um, lots of weird artistic kids went there. Yeah, um, Gilbert was one of them, and I think the first day that I stepped on campus, he was like one of the first people who talked to me. Really? Yeah, and he just like embraced me and like. He knew that I was probably kind of weird, too, and, like, just funny in, in our own way. We just clicked in that way, and, like, yeah. he was, like, the funniest person I ever met. Like, even back in the day, he just was so, like, himself, and, like, in high school, he just, like, didn't give a fuck. He, like, wore whatever he wanted, and he was kind of, like, the coolest person there. Yes. In a lot of ways, like, he just knew more about, like he was much more grown up than anyone else i like and really knew kinda, yeah it was into i mean when i you know i was out of high school obviously i was in my mid-20s in 2012 uh i and amelia was 18 and uh, i met gilbert when he was still at the end of him being in high school and when i met him i didn't know amelia yet uh, but we talked about dennis cooper i i got him to read um Dennis Cooper book. Um, let me look up which one. Uh, uh, I'm, we can cut. Totally. <laughs> I'm like forgetting. I think it's. I think uh, I know. I, oh yeah, I, I gave him closer, which is the first book in the George Miles cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, see, that's how nervous I am in a way <laughs> where I was forgetting like one of my favorite authors' books. Yeah, of um, course. And <laughs> Gilbert said he related to it a lot. Um, Gilbert was very openly gay uh by the way and was into fucked up weird dark shit and you know was this very open dude about his sexuality um upset pissed off lots of people which me and amelia really like those kind of people Mm -hmm. to this day if you mention gilbert's name in austin or other places you either have someone love him or hate him that's kind of like no in between and yeah. i know that's like a cliche but it's 100 percent true with gilbert it's completely true um, i met gilbert too and we he made actually a fan video for the breathing problem album this is before amelia was in breathing problem but um at the time mason tucker a friend of mine and i made an album uh called reactive attachment disorder which was the second breathing problem full length which ha- that could be its own story and episode because it was made um, in the spring of 2011 when I was uh, addicted to heroin. I've been eight years clean, but I was a crack addict, heroin addict. And um, that album was made under the influence of many of those drugs. And um, needless to say, fast forward, Gilbert made it, um, a like a fan video using, I think, clips from Begotten. And got, yeah, Goddess Bunny footage. Uh, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, back to you, you and Gilbert meet each other going to high school, um, and then I became friends with Gilbert separately, and one night, you know, I, it, it was in February 2012, I was, you know, trying to get off drugs, it, they, it hadn't hit yet, you know, um, I'd become addicted to heroin and crack in, uh, like, October, November of 2010, and uh, Halloween. That, yeah, the first time I ever did heroin was Halloween 2010, uh, which is you know makes which, sense. Yeah, and it's a significant day two days two years later, because that was really when 
it was kind of this commitment to to being together to, to do. being together yeah. and after that you immediately got on suboxone and it's all yes. history <laughs> yes uh i'm i'm very open about medication i take i still take suboxone which uh, no shame uh you know i'm a sober person and my life is so much better uh and i have no shame in saying i take suboxone still but um so yeah we uh we met gilbert uh we meet him at I met Gilbert going to a, this party. It was like a Friday night. I, I had nothing to do. I was trying to be off drugs, but it really hadn't stuck. Um, and I remember seeing Amelia. Uh, I wish, I think, you know. Avenue H. Yes, at this house that yeah. kids hung out at. Um, and uh, I remember you, I went, we went to this uh, party at 24th Street Co-op, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember getting in your car. What kind of car did you have back then? I believe I had a. Was it your camp? Did you have a? Hon- what that was the that was the champagne color Honda Accord, mm-hmm. and it had four doors. It was messy because I mostly like, I basically just lived on people's couches at that time. At that time, and right, and. I, my mom lived in Georgetown at mm-hmm. the time, so I just hated Georgetown. I wanted to get out of there any chance I had, so all of my stuff was just in my car, mm-hmm. and anytime I could just be anywhere, and that would usually involve Gilbert somehow, or someone in our group of friends, and it just kind of pulled me into the different social groups and tides that I probably wouldn't have necessarily made contact with unless yeah. it was with him. Mm-hmm. He was that kind of person where he just knew everyone too. Yeah. No, that's yeah. I'm trying to think uh, I didn't I immediately remember af- you know after that night asking Gilbert for your phone number. Um, I had a crush on you for sure, uh, but I didn't see you that whole summer. I know you were like stuck at your parents' house even though you were out of high school, you were stuck dealing with your own life shit i was dealing with life shit fast forward to the sum to the like august Mm -hmm. of 2012 uh when we meet on what your mom's oh yeah uh we i hung out after my mom's birthday dinner which when's your mom's august 25th right right 2012 right and i remember asking you what you got to eat and you said salmon <laughs> yeah, because we went to the Cheesecake Factory probably. Oh, right. Because this yeah, yeah. For some reason, in my mind, and this is how much of an autist I am, you said maybe you went to Chili's, but you probably uh, didn't go to Chili's. You guys didn't so. go to Chili's. <laughs> no. I don't think you're a Chili's family. No, we were in Austin because we probably were there at the Cheesecake Factory or something. Right, right. Hell um, yeah. And then your house was pretty close, and. Just drove there afterwards, and like, yeah, we were just like, we hit it off <laughs> without, uh, whoops, without getting too far, uh, in, into it. Uh, we we definitely hit it off together, and um, uh, I guess you know, to me, this story is really all about how in the midst of 
me trying to get off drugs. I was still injecting heroin, and you were kind of like wild running around Austin, unsure of what you wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've gone over the story with each other a million times, but you know, maybe you guys don't care about it, but I, I feel you know, hey, it's our podcast. We want to talk about this. <laughs> so we met then. We we hit it off. We really liked each other. We weren't dating, but we started seeing each other. I, I was uh, living in an apartment, which. Uh, the, was a weird place let's just say and um i was you know still doing drugs i remember you know we talked about this story where we were hanging out and i was like i didn't have a car i crashed my car like most drug addicts do i had no car i had completely destroyed every bridge i had you know with anybody nobody trusted me all my friends thought I was a joke and I've talked about this in interviews if you've read but you know it was the point where it wasn't that people hated me and because I was a thief too um it was that they just kind of were like Rusty's a joke he's re- you know he's never gonna change yeah and every time you would say something like everybody just kind of knew that you you were kind of just like blowing Bullshit. smoke and like yeah. it, it was just very like I lied a lot yeah you lied yeah but it was it was you know? yeah it was just because I think you really like you really clung to that thing of like you wanted that trust because that's that is like just who you are you know well yeah i want i'm the kind of person where i love my friends i want my friends to trust me and you know if any of my old old friends are listening to this you know they know that uh i was literally okay in in like eighth ninth grade frost degrees if, if degree if you're listening to this or mike Nagarado or um eva or natalie my close friends from back when I was in eighth and ninth grade, I my nickname they would say Rusty because <laughs> it was like a you know a meme with our group of friends because I would lie so much that they had a joke for oh Rusty we know you're lying and That's what they would say yes and um they'd go Rusty like you're lying and and you know I had a need to please I was a people pleaser oh, um from my own you know shit in my life um my own you know traumas and and whatever that sound you know it's an excuse or i think it's more of where this behavior came from i wanted to please people i wanted to make them happy i didn't want to tell people bad news i mean i still don't like to but i yeah. do it um and so i would just tell people what they wanted to hear um and so we've kind of gone into a flashback of going back in time but I think what's interesting is I become a drug addict and no matter what, even if you weren't, didn't have issues of lying, you're going to start lying anyway and manipulating and, uh, weird. And so, you know, back to what we were saying, you know, I was trying to get off drugs. Everyone kind of knew I would, I could bullshit. I would tell people I would pay them back. I would, you know, they, I owed money and I remember, but we were watching TV one time and I knew that I needed to get across town in Austin to get some heroin and I was going to take the bus, um, and I, but I lied to Amelia to get her to give me a ride. I, what did, I don't know. What did I tell you? The bus thing comes from <laughs> you're using this excuse at the time that you had to return your friend's bus pass oh God. Oh God. to them. And that was the, the reason why needed you needed this ride. And we showed up to the house. I, like, did, I was 18. Not- I didn't do it, like any kind of drug right besides smoke but or there's just right. a vibe when here like knew what the what, fuck was going what's on. going right. on here right. Right. you want like you don't just want me to like drop you off 
or something it was very like I felt used but in this way that like I also felt really bad for you because I didn't I knew that you it wasn't like your choice like all together to just bail like that like right because if it were you you would want to like continue like hanging out and so instead of taking that personally I was like I did like just probably one of the most mature things around that time for my age I was just like no like no don't take the bus because my plan was I was getting her to drop me off under bullshit pretenses at the friend's house and I was like oh then I'll just take the bus out back but the point was is you were like look I know this was all some dumb bullshit excuse I'll just I'll just drive you back even though I know you have drugs yeah and you know I, I guess people are probably listening to this like oh god but right after that you know, you dropped me off. I think we watched a movie. I never did drugs in front of you or anything like that. Um, it, but uh, after that, I pretty much immediately got in trouble again, went to a, a detox, and you were just kind of gone. I think in your mind, you were probably like, fuck this, I'm not hanging out with a drug addict, which is good. Yeah. It was... You were not interested in me as a drug addict. No, it wasn't like a. I wanted to do that out of like the mysterious factor right. of like getting involved in fact i was like i have no idea what i would tell my parents if i like they knew what was going on like i knew like i knew immediately like the implications of being involved with you was like the most uh like predictable thing of my path right at that like, time oh, and great. i was like Amelia's yeah gonna start dating a fucking junkie and if my parents knew what was really happening at that time it would have been like they would have totally intervened and been like, why are you, why would you ever consider seeing right. this person again? Right. So it just was that kind of thing. Even after we were together, like actually in this steady relationship, mm-hmm. it was really hard for me to, to come out and say like, you know, that I have a boyfriend who has, yeah. has had issues with drugs. In the just, I oh, didn't, I mean, yeah, I, I, oh, simply because I just didn't want anybody to but be now worried about Right. But weirdly or, enough, like now your parents know yeah, I've had issues with that. I mean, I, but it's also easy to say, oh, I've had issues of drugs, but I've been sober for two, three, six, you know, now eight years. Um, but the point is, is that Amelia did not want to date me or wasn't interested in me with drugs. I get out of a detox. I keep trying to hang out with her. She just blows me off kind of for the most part, which is in my mind, a good thing. And finally I get on Suboxone and you know, I never did heroin again. I remember the last time I ever did heroin was in October of 2012. Um, I was at a drug dealer's house and uh, you know, anyway, I don't even want to, whatever. It was like a really bad vibe. And I got my mom to take me to, to a doctor, um, a Suboxone doctor, and I started doing Suboxone then. But I think what's interesting is we start really dating. You give me a chance. Um, we were living at my mom's house in West Austin, right? Yes. Uh, we were fighting a lot. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, we, were, we talk about this. We were, like, arguing and fighting, but I also feel like we were, like, learning to – express our our feelings and And talk to each other yeah and and i don't know i i didn't go back to drugs like we kept ourselves in this kind of almost controlled like environment mm -hmm. where we could watch each other and like have each other's backs in this way right and it was just like kind of like you 
we had to break out of like not needing anything like outside of that right which felt at the time like this kind of pressurized like environment yeah environment that really pushed this kind of catharsis yeah yeah between us that we it's like we were sharing this kind of cathartic uh like like having you know when people talk about going on like a retreat and that they like just they're gonna deal with their (laughs) shit and they're gonna fucking confront it i feel like we were just confronting each other shit having long conversations every night uh, we weren't making art together necessarily yet. You know, we'd see people like Gilbert and other friends, although I had to kind of stop hanging out with a lot of people I loved, you know, not because they were heroin addicts, but just because uh, it would lead back to, to shit. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think when you get off drugs, that's the thing where you have to kind of say... It's a circular path. I can't keep hanging out. Because you realize also there's certain people, and everyone says this when they get off drugs, certain people that you thought were your friends, you realize you have literally nothing in common with them when you're not doing drugs. Like, you you have nothing to talk about. Yeah, there's a language that, you know, you pick up around each other, but then outside of that, like, if you if you want to, like, develop anything else, it's, like, it doesn't there's really nothing, it's not there. I mean, fit in with it. it's really sad, you know, people that you, you love, but you realize, like, if we don't have, like, coke or crack or heroin to, like, do and talk about and, you know, we have nothing in common. Um, and I think, uh, probably if you put it down on paper and said like, should this relationship have worked? Most people would have given in a no. Yeah. Um, but what's weird is, you know, we lived at my mom's for a couple months. Really. We only lived at her house from October to January, January, 2013, but it felt way longer in a way, but we moved into like a crummy little apartment with a roommate, um, who was friends with Gilbert and we had phones that had like roaming internet, but there was no actual internet at the house, but we didn't have, it's like, we didn't have a computer. I had no computer. You know, I think you had like a kind of like crummy laptop, but you Mm -hmm. didn't really like, and we had, there was like, what we would do. We always talk about this is we would go to the video store, RIP Vulcan video rent videos and go back to our apartment and watch like tons of movies on this little tiny tv that was like the size of a like a computer screen like a small (laughs) computer screen Mm -hmm. and which i love i I, that's so it was a fun time for sure um and we to me there's like this gradual like building up dealing with issues you know, I'm not going to bore everyone with every minute detail of our lives, but let's just say in, in June of 2013, we move into our own apartment. And then if you fast forward a little bit uh, in like, I believe it might've been the spring of 2013 or like early 2014, uh, uh, Johnny Cash, who was an Austin noise kind of legend who booked a million great noise shows contacted me and was like hey you should do your old project breathing problem again you know it's like 25 minutes into this podcast and now we finally talk about noise but i feel like we had i wanted to kind of give some details about the beginnings of our relationship how how it started and how it was really at the beginning focused on both of us not trying to fall back into self-destructive habits sure of course um and when and all of it like builds this kind of like it 
just our own particular language that became our version my my, um involvement with breathing problem which it kind of turned into um me writing about like our relationship and especially that time that we were just talking about Mm -hmm. basically and yeah um well when johnny cash hi johnny if you're listening or if you somehow hear it he really was like hey i think breathing problem was great breathing problem its earliest incarnation was a side project of my main band total abuse uh the earliest breathing problem stuff was pretty much like at the time i you know the things that influenced me aside from the obvious like peter sotos's writing and his uh buyer's market album but uh i was listening to tons of california harsh noise like um from the early 2000s which was you know uh impregnable uh, pedestrian deposit and all those kind of related callow god monorail trespassing stuff but anyway so the earliest breathing problem stuff is very like harsh noise you know at the time wall noise had really become its own thing um the total slitting of throats collab had happened the rito was blowing up and so all that stuff that very much so like direct plug plug in harsh noise crunch was the early bp stuff i you know that's something else we can talk to like but anyway mattress on the floor happens which is basically a harsh noise album with some pe then like i said uh mason tucker who just for that album collabed with me to make um the second bp album uh react attachment disorder anyway so for me for like two years nothing had happened johnny cash hits me up and says do you want to play a show Okay, and I don't remember the exact date of the show, but it was at 1808, RIP 1808, the greatest venue in Austin, right? Yes. Would you say the greatest venue? Absolutely. What should we, what can we say to people to introduce eight, what 1808 was, by the way? It's in this part of Austin that's... From in East Austin. It was on like a... Uh, it was considered like a drug area, but, you know, it really wasn't that bad. 12th and Chacon. Yeah. Um, and it was run by this dude named Gene. Gene's amazing. He's my Facebook friend. He's he's a retired dude going on, uh, or at least before COVID, was going on lots of like cruises and vacations. But he owned this bar, 1808, and he was this African-American old dude. who He told me he was the first African-American man to graduate from the UT Business School. I, I don't know why he would lie to me. Um, he was just this great dude who let punk and noise shows happen in Austin. And he just really let us, us like people like Johnny and other bookers do whatever they wanted. Um, as long as people paid and wait in long lines for the bar service, which is known to be crazy. Cause it felt more like a house show where there happened to be like a bar yeah. in some ways. Um, and, uh, so I'm sure if you talk to Austin noise people, they'll talk about 1808 or they should, because it was just a beautiful place. Um, and, uh, Johnny, I know had was booking a show and there's either video footage. There might be at least some pictures of it where I, the earliest, like be breathing problem is back was, I don't How did I say, you know, I want you to be in this. Did I just say, I want you to, to, to do this performance with me. I think it was just like a natural like thing mutual thing i'm sure you did ask me but 
it was just like happened. just something I, I don't remember the exact conversation I wanted to right. do also. because it was a kind of non-traditional thing it was because i had basically no gear at the time um all my gear had been obviously sold back when i was doing drugs you know i hadn't been by then by let's say i believe early 2014 i had you know been sober for almost two years or whatever a year and a half but you know all i think i had was like some contact mics and some distortion and delay pedals so the set i believe was like uh, basically like vocals with mm-hmm a delay and distortion and then you would sit in a chair i think we did this set a couple times yeah you sat in a chair and there was a kind of um physical where i i you know i i I don't i don't want to just say i yelled at you because i feel like that's like simplifying i'm not trying to sound pretentious that's simplifying it okay (laughs) but i I guess we could say early breathing problem or all breathing problem was about expressing the healing like our relationship and you know i don't want to you know we don't have to get into gory details about people's sex lives which you know we i'm fine to talk about that shit if we ever choose to talk more about it but let's just say um we had really connected and a physical kind of bdsm type relationship was very important for us and in it to me at least it was part of why both of us were really healing and 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 helping each other like helping our lives were getting better our lives were we were healing as people we were getting sober and not self-destructive and i think that was a one aspect of it so right that it felt like an extension of the most potent thing that we were we were dealing with together but it was something that like we could do for the first time in this way that was like channeling all of it right and it it just had a feeling to it that just you know it just spun everything from there right it was to me it was all about um you know even my art or whatever you want to call it even you know total abuse and breathing problem i've always been interested in sharing hidden things personal things um total abuse was never a band that was about like hardcore like tropes of like you stab me in the back bro i always was singing about myself and my own issues of myself which that's thing else to talk about i've talked about this before but like near the you know total abuse isn't a band anymore but one of the issues even with it was uh the first two total abuse full lengths are about self-destruction and you know drug abuse and excluded the final album was about essentially healing and being you know not a normal person but uh not being a self-destructive pig anymore and uh so i think anyway back to breathing problem both of we wanted to we were always interested in expressing these things that people either hid or didn't want to deal with as much or talk about which you do that anyway i I mean you know you've always been interested in astrology I think that um, one thing I want to add is like maybe we could we could add this or not. It was like one of those campus parties. Oh, where the person thought that yeah. I was like they were like, "Are you okay?" No, tell tell the I story. I guess like I this was is early in our relationship. About... We weren't even technically dating, but yeah. I was still a drug addict. But we were at some other campus party, right. and I I don't even really remember this, was this before that, much. that first show, and like. It was just well, like a, years before the show. Yeah, it was right. just a sorority girl who went to UT 
with her, you know, her friends and possibly her boyfriend. And she, like, looked over at, at both of us and then came up to me and she was like, hey, do you need help? <laughs> And I wasn't, like, yelling at you or hitting you. No, No, there was no, like, direct reasoning. But there was this kind of, like, expectation that, like, I did need some kind of, like... Because of my aura. I had, like, a menacing, weird aura. And I I had this aura, too, of, like, as if I, I needed some kind of, like, intervention or, like, help from someone, like please save this person like she i don't know what he's doing to her kind of thing and but you kind of loved it because you right you were like no i'm fine right right exactly and so like the same thing happened when we would play shows together Mm -hmm. where i felt like this kind of power Mm -hmm. in the idea that there was like nothing that could happen to me Mm -hmm. but on the outside like the way that it looks is just so different and like how right because it's playing with the expectations of like a woman in trouble right that a man who's being physically aggressive or even uh in any way psychically aggressive whatever you want to say that woman is in trouble and needs help and that's we need to teach people to help that person but what's i think what's amazing is we end up being super good for each other and healthy and and by this time especially in 2014 we were like living in a great place we I think we did. I don't know if we had our dog Una yet, but you know, we were in a really good spot. So it's like being able to play with these expectations of, Oh yeah, totally. Of what being in danger, uh, being able to, you know, cause in, in the in private, in like in a private context, BDSM is, you know, this dangerous, this is making a broad generalization. Like is a, is a dangerous act with, within safe trusting context, you know? And the early breathing problem stuff and beyond is, like, this dangerous act. But it's almost like you're telling people, like, no, 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 you can't help me. I'll let you know. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know. It's it's complicated. It is. But you're playing with the audience's expectations. Yeah. Among other things, I guess. What, uh, what else? Uh, you know, in this thing, you'd be sitting in a chair. We might be able to add pictures or, or you know, link video. And I would fucking, you know, be yelling um through the microphone so there'd be this kind of the 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 audio was more of a reaction to the physicality which is which is something else we would play with later but i think we both knew that we you know to me it isn't as simple as like we were like freaking people out and making them uncomfortable uh you know all all the best performances make you uncomfortable at least in my mind um to me it was a little more complex than that to where yeah where you have you can you know mess with the expectations or like the appearances of something that you know it might not seem like it but it's like actually uh like transformative like um almost like mutual giving over of like power mm-hmm. which it's yeah, like it's hard to word put into it. words um there's it's there's this private exchange happening between us but it's also happening 
with the audience in this right. passive way. That's what's interesting is we sh- we knew we wanted to do this thing without even planning it out. It's what came about the energy that we felt that was just beautiful, positive energy. I mean, we're the kind of people that we like uncomfortable things and and whether it's watching a film, uh, I don't know, like watching Welcome to the Dollhouse or, a, you know, a Lars von Trier film or, you know, something that's an obvious kind of example, but something that in some ways I think certain people might view as like purely negative that really the, the to me at least the truth in one layer the truthful the tr- the the pure kind of revealing truth that exists in that art is such an ecstatic beautiful feeling to me right so to so when we were doing this thing where we're expressing these physical and kind of conceptual things through these performances um that to a lot of people seem to be purely negative if anything hopefully i was always hoping the audience would see that it could also be this beautiful uh kind of almost not i don't want to say religious but just a beautiful experience beyond catharsis which who knows what that really word means because it's so overused um but just you know we could t- that's the first breathing problem performance right where we're not even really fully planning it out and then if you know breathing problem you know we're known, especially um, in the mattress on the floor era, for the physical performances that we did, and then of course, uh, the infamous. If you're our friend, you're probably like, yeah, I've heard. You know, there's the infamous New York Nothing Changes performance uh, that was I I call our acoustic set, but I think that could be its own episode. By the way, we, that yeah. could that should be its own episode. Maybe we could get Demokos or someone to be on here talking with us. That'd be great. But. Um, I think pretty much immediately Johnny was like, you guys need to keep doing this. You need to keep doing breathing problem. And uh, I don't know if we really started recording immediately, but we started playing a lot of shows. I mean, pre-COVID even, I think uh, it's really complicated, but, you know, Johnny left Austin and uh, there's lots of interpersonal things, but but there was a really beautiful time that in Austin from, like, I would say 2013 to 2000. 16 or 17 that was just all great shows and people supporting each other and tons of people going coming out to see each other play and from that we really honed our set i mean there's all kinds of shows that we could talk about but it was like you know it wasn't just sitting in a recording studio recording it was learning to play live together and and really understanding how those sets would go um and anyway those are really amazing times um but I think what's interesting is breathing problem begins at the, the, at the beginning of our a kind of positive spin for us in our relationships. You know, Amelia and I have long conversations, and this is why I wanted to record some of them, about how we were doing – we were both solo people being self-destructive. We meet each other we it's a kind of a crazy volatile relationship a little bit i mean it was never we never were physical we were never like you know it wasn't really all that insane it was more intensely dramatic at times but you know we don't really even fight anymore uh i'm not trying to brag about our you know fuck that relationship but to me i'm proud of the fact that we have been together for as long as we have and we uh at least in my opinion, know how to communicate with each other. And, and 
I'm proud of the relationship that we've created together. And also the fact that it's an artistic relationship. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, now breathing problem productions is a label and we release lots of stuff released in the world of noise relative to that. We also have lots of what I call in-house breathing problem productions, things like interior one concave convex, um, mental abortion sectioned, uh, Slang Ministries, which are all me and Amelia. Mental abortion is other people too, of course, but it's just me and Amelia, and it's it's you know it's, there's different sounds and different concepts. Um, but breathing problem was the beginning of that germ. Like now, I would define like I'm so OCD. I put breathing problem productions projects in little boxes, but you know breathing problem to me is always going to be about our relationship. Right? right and about romance and love and sex and then interior one is i wouldn't just call it like it's not it's about crime and the media and um the meaning and the hidden and the connections that we have connections, yeah. you know i don't want to say true crime because that's a, such a loaded word that i can't i hate using the word sadly um then concave convex is about the human body for lack of a better word um chilsling ministries is about politics uh men mental abortion is just a band i mean that's a noise core band <laughs> um what else uh sectioned is a newer one we've only done one tape on fusty cunt and that's about uh medical uh it's almost like a, a, a it's almost like a sub project of concave convex and it's very specifically about um people who are I don't want to say illness figures because really, because a lot of these people have do have some illnesses, but it's about um, the first tape was about people who would get uh, the the tube that it was the first kind of tube. Amelia and I, God, I don't want to even go on this long tangent, but it was about people who get feeding tubes, and there's going to be another release eventually that's going to be about stoma bags, which yeah, under the umbrella of uh, Munchausen by Internet, right? That's that's what a lot of people call it. That will be its own episode. That's something Amelia has been doing tons of research about. Um, uh, I mean, but but if we zoom all the way back, breathing problem begins with the show. We start talking about what we want breathing problem to be, and we start really seriously uh, doing it together. And uh, there's a couple, you know, I think it, that version of breathing problem culminates in mattress on the. F uh, oh my god. Bed of Sex, Pit of Tar, I almost said matched on the floor, sorry. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, the we could talk about how we recorded Bed of Sex, Pit of Tar. You know, our amazing producer, uh, Mitchell Kreitz from, who does Immortalists, helped produce a huge part of that album. He's like basically the executive producer, for lack of a better word. You know, I don't know what you call it, the produ music producer. Um, but I'm trying to keep this at like an hour, but uh, we so we still have a little time, but... What else, I mean, what can we, without talking, you know, what should we talk about next? Like, maybe we should talk about what we want out of this podcast. Yeah. You know, I want to keep talking about the, the label. I want to talk about, uh, t talk to friends. I want to talk about films. Like, I was saying we could do a whole episode just talking about sex, the Annabelle Chong story, which is a documentary about the 90s porn star Annabelle Chong, which is one of Amelia and I's favorite films um it's like because that became its own concave convex album and then also we can talk about sex surrogate too which is another documentary right. 
um like I, I want there to be there's so many things we can talk about films we love and albums we love um I feel like I guess I wanted to say you know I hope there's a narrative thread with with this first episode in that we meet each other the beginnings occur and you know I think some people just say would say oh breathing problem is BDSM and then music which I think is super simplifying it right you know through the beginnings of breathing problem Gilbert was living with us I guess we could go back to Gilbert right Gilbert moved into our house as a roommate we he didn't have to pay rent because we had an extra room so through the beginnings gilbert was there he went on tour with us once crazy tour yes um uh and he was like super supporter of us on early breathing problem tapes there's uh gilbert does vocals on one song right um we've just cut okay um from talking about the first breathing problem show that was pretty much just vocals and physicality we wanted to fast forward and end talking about this infamous new york nothing changes so um uh do you want to here can you start the story what what was sure um we went on this east coast tour and we with with um future blondes and how i quit crack and um we were touring the entire time with a mattress Mm -hmm. um just a small one so every show um we would haul this little mattress in the venue Mm -hmm. and no matter how hard it was if there were stairs if it was a basement it did not matter that's like what we were doing so in new york this is a venue in chinatown so everything is below ground like in a basement so we got everything set up Mm -hmm. um well in our okay and i would say like our previous you know the normal shows of that tour if you were from austin you knew kind of it was based off of our mattress on the floor out or oh my god i did it again our bed of sex pit of tar album um where we would essentially do this final song where we would put waterproof contact mics in our mouths we would uh kiss and record the, a, a loop of that and then i would get you on the mattress and we would do like a physical kind of controlled violent uh act where you know you're hearing did you whenever we would do see whenever we would do the end did you have the mic in your mouth or there was no yeah that was me and so it would like i would throttle you or kiss you or choke you or hit you and you would still hear the loops right right yeah okay um and so the the end of the performance is very intense but it's also based around having a backing there was like a synth loop from a sampler and then there's this live sampling going on of of amelia's vocals through this mic in her mouth so what had happened is we went to new york we went to the venue which we'd played there twice before well breathing probably played once and i'd played there before um the people that 
did nothing changes um soren and nikki are great people um just we decided we wanted to play first because i was very nervous i don't know how you felt but i felt very nervous to even play that night for sure absolutely i i was the kind of person that was like i just want to get this done we had been on tour and had been sleeping in shared hotels and we'd gotten our own private hotel room for the couple days we were going to be in new york so i was like so exhausted yeah um so i believe the pa was blown or didn't work but nobody really knew that because we were the first act uh later they discovered it and they were put someone brought in their own speakers but like we were the test subjects and they're like hey the pa isn't blown it's fine and i was like no the pa is not blown and this is like classic noise 101 where people look you know would i would be playing out of my our mixer and they just thought i was an idiot i guess i am an idiot i don't know how to play guitars i don't know how to play bass i'm the vocalist i'm the airheaded vocalist so when i would do noise when you do noise you know i think a lot of people just thought i didn't know what i was doing which i guess i didn't you know i don't know how to play an instrument still but anyway i knew there was something wrong with the pa and they it was like this mix of you got to go there's a bunch of backs in front of you and so We'd set everything up, and it wasn't playing, and I remember looking at you. And I completely did not want to just... We had everything set up, and I just looked at you. I could tell you were like, fuck this. Right. And I was like, There was a ton of people there watching, by the way. Yeah. People that were friends, people are enemies, lots of kids from the internet, you know. Yeah. And I was like, there's no need for this to even be like something that someone needs to hear it's something that you can just like show show yeah and like i said i always call it an acoustic performance because this was this was the end of our performance usually we had like a 20 minute set and then it culminated in this very physical violent some sometimes it was like super chill just be like it wasn't really all that like intense in terms of physicality depending on our mood you know right but uh, whenever, you know, in my mind, essentially, it was Amelia got on the mattress and there was no music playing and we fucking went off on each other. I went off on her. And of course, this is our set that we have. This is a version of our set that we've been doing for years. Right. This wasn't me, you know, doing something we had, you know, this um, Amelia and I wanted to do this this way because there was no PA. So we're going to do the performance part. So it was the most intense, violent version of this performance. So in terms of... And uh, out of all the shows that we played, that performance, that specific act, that was the most tenuous of the room. The audience felt, like, so close. Yeah. The venue was so small. Yeah, it's like in a basement, kind of, almost. I was, like, inches from everyone's face. Right. And... It felt like the moment that that was happening, it felt like there, like time wasn't even like real or something. It just like <laughs> felt like, yeah, it was just the most peculiar, like absurd feeling you could ever be in in public because yeah. it's like you're doing something completely private in front of everyone, and it's not in the same context that everybody gets with like a show where there's this kind of um force field like this invisible force field like you're playing the music and you're somehow se- you're on this you're stage separate, you're right. separate from right, everyone right. else even the first breathing problem performance yeah. even though it was like violent 
to a certain degree, this, there was that that audience separation still. Right. Whereas this didn't have that feeling. And I think it was just almost like everyone felt too close for comfort. Mm-hmm. It was like, like we did the, this performance, and the second we stop, we hear someone say from across the room, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And everyone had this mixed feelings. Some of some girls approached me and they were like, please explain what just <laughs> they happened. They wanted us to give trigger warning. They wanted to g- Amelia to give an artist statement as if it's fucking art school. You know, one guy who had recorded the video, which I'm assuming it dele- is deleted now forever, which we've always wanted to find. Uh, was yelling at me, calling me like a piece of shit. I think it's very telling that they thought I had somehow talked Amelia into this. You know, this is supposed to be this transgressive, uh, extreme music night. And keep in mind, the people that run the night, they all were totally accepting and understood it. I'm talking about the some audience members. um, They, their preconceived notions were that uh, they that I had somehow pushed Amelia into doing this, and I was just some violent piece of shit guy, which you know is hilarious to me because these are supposed to be like forward thinking people, and uh, sure, and it's I'm... it's not they they just assume the man did all of the, the the work, which is just is a very sad state of affairs because this was you know people from Austin and that were on tour with us or that had seen the performance before knew of course that we had been for lack of a better word workshopping this thing for like two years you know um so of course that wasn't the case but i I loved i love seeing that kind of hypocrisy um i i probably talked about this before maybe so many times but to me it was this amazing expression slash proof of this total you know I don't want to call them posers. Of course, a lot of these people were posers, but that they were interested in the kind of Tumblr aesthetics of like reblogging a, you know, uh, throbbing gristle band photo of like, man, they all look so cool or a White House poster or something. But they weren't interested in the meat of whether it's industrial culture, power electronics or noise. You know, they were completely turned off they wanted to be essentially shown like a techno show with whips and chains and they could go home and say they did something fun and i'm not trying to say what we did was objectively good or bad you know people could have hated it but i think it's amazing that there was this intensely like people were angry right it definitely exposed something right there right and people and they didn't know how to swallow that yeah at the time then they it's like uh, the next day there was posts about it. There were people, you know, upset or talking about our artist statement. Um, and I think what's interesting is at that time in noise or PE or even punk culture, there was lots of like BDSM imagery, right? Like there's lots of like gimp people, right? You'd see like leather gimp mask guy on a flyer, right? Or like leather daddy on a tape. And it always was just, it was just used as window dressing. Um, and I think it's interesting that uh, 
without naming names or getting too deep into it like later that night there was that kind of like window dressing very simplistic you know people would say to amelia you should be the one that dominates rusty right right i mean how many times have someone said that to you absolutely like many, many, many times, times. <laughs> and part of the reason why they got so upset they were like you know you should have had this trigger warning <laughs> and then you know the next show that we played they were warned about us yeah they got the trigger everybody warned everyone before we played but the thing that was weird to me is that that show after that there was all these people there just because of what they heard had heard happens like mm-hmm. they were like expecting a freak show or something yeah and and so many of our shows like we said some were more intense than others it wasn't you can't fake that kind of intensity so sometimes you would just see us doing you know it was always we always tried and went but it wasn't like every time was this fake bullshit like stage play right you know um so you know, sorry to say the people that were expecting some kind of show got our set and it was great and but it wasn't as intense as the acoustic set. We didn't need it to be as intense. Right. Um I I think But because they had been warned they still kinda of took away the same feelings from it. That right. was like their whatever their preconceptions yeah. were. Yeah. Um I think, you know, luckily that I've, you could easily reduce everything we do to a kind of, to like, this is just a BDSM performance live. And in some ways that's fine if that's like, because to me, you know, BDSM is like a very complex and personal and great thing. It can be bad or good, you know, whatever. It's just a form of something. But I I, I hope that people see that it it goes beyond that. Um, And I don't really want to have to explain that all ins and outs of it, which kind of, and I guess in this, this episode we kind of have been talking about the things we love about those performances again it there's a kind of feeling of we're doing something intensely personal but also acknowledging that the audience is a part of that personal act and sometimes that audience will fail to understand your point of view or where you're coming from Mm -hmm. Or what that has to do, and that as a you know, the, just ju- just like the preconceived notion that uh, that Amelia needs to be protected from this this guy who's trying to exploit her or use her to do this violent performance. When you know, if anything is the opposite, it's the performance you workshopped and put into play and wanted to, to pursue. Um, I think, you know, I don't know. I'm not, especially in this podcast, I'm not really interested in like saying all these were, these are all people are like this, or these t- types of people are like this. A- any group or scene or whatever can, can have that kind of, uh, those kind of hypocrites for lack of a better word. But I think sometimes there's a beautiful experience in being able to reveal that kind of, not just hypocrisy, but the uncomfortable feelings that exist, um, from, revealing something deeply personal within this space of i think many people just want to be entertained i mean we could talk about the state of live music obviously doesn't exist now because of covid really (laughs) but even before that it sometimes things felt like 
uh, people sometimes were just going through the motions and just wanted to be shown a little nice little show. And they could do their drugs, do coke or ecstasy or whatever, and get drunk. And something was in front of their face, and then they walk away, and that's that. Um, it's I think uh, uh, hopefully we we can we at least give people um, we always try our our hardest and try to do performances that have a meaning and compassion right <laughs> even if that's scary yeah sometimes. yeah and um i guess this is kind of like a you know a good place to to start winding it down but i i think those are that's a really good story to tell and there's plenty of people you know that supported us even more so after that performance and we played the next night actually before the philly show we played the next night in new york at a different show and it was like a very traditional set mm -hmm. normal set um i want to keep talking about this uh i want to keep having conversations about things we love i want to figure out ways to have our friends come in and talk to us um, right now we're recording this live in our house in our recording studio um, on two microphones that we got uh, and it was like pure hell trying to make this work, which we figured it out. But like I was having a little baby fit before. Um, but so hopefully we can figure out how to add more people. I mean, we could do it probably through Zoom, but oh, God, that's its own like headache. But we're going to figure it out. OK, cool. So uh, I just wanted to talk about a little bit about musically before breathing problems started when we met each other. Um, kind of what are, I'm sure I, I can talk about mine a little bit, but what some of like your, what you were interested in musically, because I think that's the thing that, you know, we haven't really talked about with people that are interested in breathing problem or like breathing problem or breathing problem productions. Um, I can say mine just really quick. Um, I you know, got into punk as a kid, and I played in punk bands when, you know, I was like 12, 13, 14, this band called The Snobs, you know, people might already know this kind of boring stuff if they already know about total abuse, um, but, uh, when I got into college, uh, I really fell into to noise, I discovered White House and Peter Sotos, and <coughs> his work, uh, influenced me in a huge way in terms of the in incredible writing uh, and then also his album Buyer's Market and the Peter Sotos related tracks on White House albums uh, like Bird Seed and Private and Public um, that are all samples if, in case you didn't know. Um, there's no music or even backing tracks. It's just samples from newscasts and uh, documentaries um, which just had a huge profound impact and there'll probably be another episode where we can dive into Sotos uh, much deeper but needless to say he influenced me a lot and uh from there weirdly enough this is like 2006 and somebody made a mix cd or might have this was like the era of i don't know if you know like there was blogs that would have you know links like sound or media fire and sense space so there'd be like it was it was an, a great time for sharing digital music before uh, all those things kind of disappeared but th somebody made a uh, power electronics mix cd uh and um there was a prurient song uh 
from his Black Vase album. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, I believe the song was uh, Back Cuts. Um, let me see. Yes, it was it was Back Cuts, um, which is Black Vase is like a super incredible brain album and it is almost like rec it's almost recorded like a live not like a live band but it's clearly done live in terms of there's like feedback and then there's clearly a lot of using of cymbals and percussion with contact mic um i could be wrong though uh, if you're listening someone's listening to this and knows how it was recorded but uh it's just it doesn't feel necessarily like a harsh noise album or even a traditional like synth power electronics album. It feels very much so like this deconstructed live kind of ritual assault. Um, and I think coming as a fan of like hardcore uh, and guitar music, for lack of a better word, um, he hearing that Perrient stuff, there was a kind of connection or um, where they almost bridged two gaps. I think I was tr looking for something that was essentially noise for a long time, and then when I finally uh, found it, it really blew my mind. I got the full Black Vase album, and the opening of the album, uh, let's see, what is that song called, uh, is Roman Shower, which is like 16 minutes long almost, of just fucking piercing feedback, and <clears throat> I think it to me, it, instead of, like, some people might find that kind of minimalism boring, the violence and physicality inherent in the feedback uh, was just total perfection. It was like pushing at me. So to me, there's a mix of White House and Sotos and the conceptual nature of those projects and then the physicality of uh, Blackface and Prurient. Um, I def I, I guess, uh, you know, I could go in more in depth about my history with noise and the, and the albums that influenced me, but I'll just say that those albums were like, or the, those two things were huge for me. And from there, uh, I, I just completely fell into being interested in power electronics and noise. Um, but if we fast forward to us meeting in, uh, you know, 2012, October, you know, when we're kind of dating each other in October 2012, and then the things that I remember you playing for me was uh, – Tiny Tim, which I, of course, knew about Tiptoes of the Tulips, but I had never listened to Tiny Tim's m main first album and then his children's album. Mm, God bless Tiny Tim. And then the For All My... What is the other one called? Like, For All My Little Friends or something yeah. like that? Um, you f would play those two albums and know those songs by heart, and, you, you know, of course, you still do. You were deeply into Tiny Tim. Do you know what, like, what connected you to his stuff? It's just his his spirit underneath like who he is as like a a soul kind of comes through because he's such a he he knows like just he's a troubadour so he he collects these songs but in the way that he covers them he like emotes the the real lover like spirit in it mm -hmm. i guess and like it's just very like, um, like pure and like yeah, in his innocence, like even just as like a complicated person too. He's not really just like a 
a simple guy. It's just like he just kind of still radiates like a sort of like um, quality and presence to him that just it feels very like comfortable and like you can get totally carried away like in mm-hmm. memorizing the same songs and like you realize like he really taps into like like any cover that he does you you could have like heard that song like a million times but the way that he performs it mm-hmm. is just exactly the way that the song should be performed in that way i yeah. guess yeah yeah for sure um Oh, that's a great description. I love that. I mean, there's this beautiful dedication and obsession and, like, religious furiosity from him. I don't know if that's the right word. No, (laughs) that's perfect word. You know, and then we started listening to his interviews. There's, like, this – I think there's there's an amazing Howard Stern interview with him. Maybe he's done a couple. I think maybe he did two, but – Current ninety three did that CD right where it's mostly where, interviews yeah some of them like, are interview stories so he like talks a ton about his background of like who he used to have these celebrity crushes on right which are really important for him and the songs that he memorizes I mean you realize that so much of Tiny Tim is all about his love and history with American music and the history of like this old music style like mm-hmm. this. These old, incredible songs that he would learn in the library, uh, and then also these obsessions that he'd have, like, with women, but... And he'd write songs about them. Right, and, like, that they're, again, he's a, he has this deep religious devotion, and then he has this sexual obsession, and it all gets intermingled, mm-hmm. and it all becomes this, this incredible thing that is, un, like, completely his own. Yeah. And... You know, that's what I think is interesting is you can know Tiny Tim from, like, the, the, you know, Tip Through the, the Tulips is almost like this meme song that's existed in American history. But then if you go deeper, there's just this incredible mm-hmm. history beyond that, you know. I just got coffee and stomped around. And uh, so we cut. And um, now we're talking about... I talked about some of the influences I had in my childhood and then also just kind of like how I got into noise and we talked a little about what we were both listening to at the time that we met each other and kind of how that, how we connected over each other's specific interests and how that kind of translated into Breathing Problem as a musical project. Um, But I really wanted to ask you about... I guess the artists and bands that you love because you know you have your own kind of specific history and language with music could you talk about that stuff a little bit um growing up my dad was a songwriter so um I got exposed to everything that he was listening to mm-hmm. stuff like uh Lucinda Williams and like other country alt music like Edie Brickell um, or there's another one of his favorites that is also my favorite is, uh, Innocence Mission. Yeah, you showed me that band. And, um, still to this day, the album Glow is still my favorite, um. And it's kind of like, for people that don't know, like, they were a mid-90s kind of, like, alt-pop, um, indie kind of band 
but they were also kind of from are they from like middle america i mean, I guess we could look up where they're from they're from pennsylvania and they it has this it's like it's definitely like has this christian vibe but it's like this very personal version of christianity i don't know i think it's really cool um yeah yeah because your dad grew up being into country music but also kind of within the he was like a part of the church in texas right right yeah he grew up in like bandera Mm-hmm. and lubbock so he was always like my parents met in a tiny church right. like in texas right and they were always like involved with something like that so yeah they're like so did you go to around. church a lot growing up or, or mm, more like not, not really um like growing up my parents definitely took us to church but well, it, wasn't it wasn't like, like every, every week or right. anything but was it once a month for a while or do you think less yeah, than about that? that yeah um, when we first moved to Georgetown, we would go to this little Methodist church together, mm. and I went to Sunday school there. <laughs> um, well, what's, I think, what's another, like, what are other projects that were big? My dad showed me, like, actually, like, Amy Winehouse mm-hmm. when she was, like, at her height, I guess, when, when she made uh, Back to Black. He bought that, like, and... I loved it. It was like he showed me all of the song, like the entire. We would listen to the entire CD together mm-hmm. in his truck, even though like a lot of her songs are pretty like adult content. Like it was still like because you were like in totally, middle school ish, yeah, right? in about drugs or like sex or something. But I kind of didn't really like understand. I just knew that it was great music and like the production of that album was like so great. And mm-hmm. it's just like her stuff again is like super personal mm-hmm. every one of her songs was like written to kind of like her own personal account of like her own language of heartbreak or having some crush on a guy who like doesn't like you or like there's all kinds the, of stuff that no she, i think that's what's interesting is i had never with. really listened to amy winehouse when i met you of course i knew the singles that, that were released but whenever you showed me her uh the full albums like like you were saying, there's like this very specific personal history that comes from the songs sure, yeah. that she's speaking about, whether it's like relationships or stories, and it's just like so beautifully um, exposed. Like yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it doesn't necessarily. I mean, I I'm we're both big pop music fans. We love Britney Spears and Lady Gaga and all kinds of stuff, um, but I think even more so. Uh, not you know it, within the world to say pop music at that time in the mid two that like you know two thousand six seven eight nine, she was, if you go beyond just the singles, there's like this really really personal thing you know stuff within that music. Yeah, totally. And I could totally see why you were you know you were showing me the songs, and I, you were like no no really like check out look at the lyrics and songs that you would like say reminded me of reminded you of me um so of course me being like a narcissist yeah i know but i mean that i can I, I don't know i totally started to understand it and get it for sure yeah you can totally click to that like i don't know real real deep personal level feeling did your dad listen to tiny tim too or, or did how did you discover his stuff and i was just into my own like things like, discovering songs yeah like i really like wanted to learn like ukulele mm-hmm. and would pick up songs on that because it's like so easy to learn and well the, I can... you know those are like the first like if you look up like ukulele chords it's like 
the Tiny Tim songs will come oh. up in that like so fast. So that is that how you maybe discovered him? Yeah, for sure. That's so I, cool. I also just like the his own songwriting with like ukulele. It just sounds it's so innocent. Yeah. <laughs> I, also, I remember, <clears throat> of course, you were a big fan of Steve Martin and the Jerk, and you would play. Uh, What's that song called from the jerk? Um, I think it's called You Belong, you belong to Me. Yeah, duh, duh, duh. and I mean, of course, I'm a huge fan of that movie. Um, but to me, it was so perfect whenever I met you, like that we both connected over that film. Yeah. Um, it also, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, because like I think your first tattoo was a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tattoo, right? <laughs> yes. When did you give that yourself the tattoo? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's sick. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that series of books um, and, like, the original uh, BBC uh, TV, like, miniseries. Oh, it rules, yeah. And I can, I don't know. I just remember talking to you a lot about that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, we both have always been interested in wanting to reveal these parts of ourselves that... Uh, I think people don't always want to let out or even specifically within noise. There's like a faux version of that. There's like, I'm showing you this raw, brutal, you know, part of my life. I'm like this twisted soul, but really it's just like using tropes from the genre itself. You know what I mean? Right. So to me, even, even us showcasing romance and love and connection in a uh, bed of sex is something that, people even don't reveal you know what i mean okay. there's the obvious kind of like revealing the fucked up disgusting shit you've done or i fucked so many prostitutes or blah 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 but uh not there's anything wrong with that but uh i think also it's interesting to sit to that talking about who you are isn't specifically within this kind of scene that we all exist in isn't just to, through one wet channel or aspect extreme aspect of you right it, it can yeah. be extreme to talk about your deep connection and love to somebody right yes and an obsession can be just as fucked up a crush on someone and like you know just as fucked up as i don't know like whatever deep, twisted yeah shit. twisted fantasy yeah and i mean that's not to say like we don't like tropes i'm sure we'll talk about it more but like we we started mental abortion together and now mental abortion is uh, deformed pig and venom 84 and Z zach fogel uh who all collaborate with us but you know mental abortion st started with me and you and you know really that's all about searching within ourselves to come up with the weirdest song titles and uh but still in a truthful way like i don't i don't know like within the genre of like noise core or fucked up weird extreme music i think the thing that I one of the things I love is the people that do like thousands of song titles you know what I mean and it it becomes like this method of creating this kind of absurd surreal poetry but whatever that's for another day but I love I doing that would with love you too to talk about that yeah, yeah no because <laughs> you write like a lot of people don't know that like when Amelia sings in mental abortion uh sh for live shows back when you could play live shows she always writes out a song list so she sang titles there's you know what i mean like she i never told her to do this because i would i'm just the kind of guy <laughs> that would just scream but she fucking always has a set list 
with her of, of titles that have been written in the past yeah what well, why what made you want to do that i have to anchor my mind into the the mood by exposing my thoughts the most filthy stuff right beforehand to right. like no like i'm gonna come out strong with like every bit of like filth inside me yeah <laughs> yeah no like, totally so because yeah it's like you don't want to just scream you know nothing random words you want to be saying it and feeling it yeah there's I, always a story there underneath like yeah. like a concept I'll, I'll usually like per night want to focus on one thing like whether that's uh john benet ramsey or like I don't know, like uh, the like the, the toy box killer, the right or uh, what is that? The guy that the the note, right, or the the, the cassette tape that you wake yeah. up. The Karen Greenlee. Oh, that that yeah, yes, yes, the necrophile. Yes, her her uh, her interview that's in the first apocalypse culture was a big influence. Influence, yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, which is just like I it's it's. You know, it's not maybe the most complex apocalypse culture article, but it's one of the ones everyone remembers and that I love. Cause it's like the real, like, let's talk to, anyway, talk to a necrophile. Fuck sure. yeah. Um, I want to get into that mind before. Yes, you I always do. And I'm so glad you do. Um, but to me, that's like going back as this example of we need each other. We know each other. We have our own interests. You know, you weren't ever trying to, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I, what I love about you is you were just always very much so yourself. And these are the things that you loved. And whether it was Lucinda Williams or Christian alt rock or, um, tiny Tim or, you know, whatever you were listening to, that was like your stuff that you loved. And when we collaborated together, it was all about showcasing, these real things within us because you know in that for me doing total abuse the lyrics that i loved were all about revealing this this part of me and to finally connect with somebody that was really really interested and i think the same things the the new version of breathing problem that i love was about taking my kind of traditional interests in noise and hardcore and the history that comes from that and then you and your interests and and your kind of outside of the scene interests right and then us coming together and i think it became so much better for it so you have our relationship that's influencing it but then you have your own interest in like all these whether whether it's like space and ast astronomy and astrology or finding out about weird his instruments that aren't traditional or finding samples that you love that you connect with you know like we both love Lasuria um and and kind of dark ambient ambient music and to me um it was always we would listen to like a Lasuria album or tape and think about like oh where did he find these sources or how did he manipulate a source and then kind of be like archaeologists like cult like putting our heads together and connecting over that. And uh, I think, I guess to me, since this is the first episode and this is like, okay, this is breathing problem. This is how we met. I guess the second part of this is what I'm trying to say is it's a beautiful thing that there was the, that we're kind of like these two different people that are interested in these different things. We, and we were able to create this project through these kind of separate interests. 
you know what I mean? Yeah. That we both brought our own kind of point of view and connected over it. And it still exists through that, you know? Like, even uh, in terms of our sub-projects, the section project, we mentioned this before, how we had done a, uh, one about anorexic girls that have, you know, tubes, they are tube-fed. But now, you know, you've been doing tons and tons of research about these girls that get stoma bags that they don't need. Uh, or, you know, essentially it's, uh, for lack of a better word, almost like a, well, not a plastic surgery, but you know what I mean? Like a surgery that An you, elective. Yeah, an ele- it's like an elective stoma, be- and there's various reasons that we are interested in talking about. Many different, um, like, accessories mm-hmm. of your insides are on the outside. Right. To be this proof and this status symbol of your illness. Yes, that can't be denied. I mean, so much so that to me, the stone, like the, the feeding tube stuff, when you realize it, it, because these are just tubes, the first album is just about the the classic, like the tube where they just kind of put it through your nose and it goes down your sinus and into your stomach. And then they can give you like a liquid diet because, you know, for most, for many of these girls, they're just anorexic, they're being hospitalized, and then they're going to take the tube out. right? Right. But it's like, then there's kind of a middle area that we haven't talked about where people get the little ports where it's like a feeding tube. But then the stoma stuff, you know, it's not it's, – it's, these people aren't being f- tube fed. This is what the shit comes out of. But it's almost like the final level of the tube shit. Right. It's like this, is, this isn't just, oh, there's a little port where I get my nutrients. No, this is like, no, no. I, my in, like you said, my insides are on my outside. I am like – this very broken person. Yes. And they're so proud of it. Yeah. The symbol. <laughs> I mean, there's something we talk about with everyone. They call it, they, they say they get Barbie butt surgery, yes. which is what? A proctectomy. Proctectomy. So it's what they get their, their lower intestine or their no, asshole removed or, or their rectum. The rectum is sewn up, right? Yes. Um, and they their call- rectal stump is removed. Oh God. And then their rectum, their butthole is sewn. Right. So they call it having their, a Barbie, Barbie butt, butt, like the way Barbie, the toys. Because it's also what I've noticed is like the aesthetic is almost like I'm beyond this um, this level of having these human um, needs or like the, these bodily functions. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I don't, I don't shit. Or like you know, right? No, exactly. It. I'm a. It's like there's this angelic, perfect yeah. being, but I'm still like very broken, and um, I think, you know, it. I don't eat. I don't shit. Right, right. And I think it's <laughs> so. That's just an example of, you know, the present of where we're always at. Um, I think uh, this is probably a good stopping place, but you know, I don't know how some of this might be edited in between everything, but. I think this is a good episode in terms of just wanting to introduce us, introduce the, the, the short story of how we met and how that meeting and relationship turned into the early version of Reading Problem. And in the future, I'd love to do you know a podcast, like an episode where we talk about every track on the keyhole and every track on Mattress on the Floor and talk about the samples from each one or the people that, like Mitchell Kreitz, Crumb, who does Immortalist, um, has helped produce tons of, of amazing tracks for us 
and so that's its own collaborative thing. Um, but I'm just really excited about where we're going with this podcast, and hopefully we can talk to more people. And Yeah, I'm yeah. so stoked. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess we're going to wind down uh, and, and end this, but expect more material. Hopefully you guys like it. It's completely free. Uh, there's um, Right after this, we're going to record like a five-minute comedy podcast, so that should be available too. Um, thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm Rusty Kelly. And I'm Amelia McKay. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye.